Well, good morning, church. Thank you for, uh, Bob, thank you, Bob, for leading our scripture reading this morning, and we're going to jump right into Ezra 6 today, and where we left off last week in uh, this account of uh, the ministry of God's people during the time shortly after the Babylonian exile, is we left kind of with a cliffhanger at the end of chapter 5 that uh, they finished chapter 5 having sent a letter to King Darius to see what his desire would be regarding uh, this temple building project. It seemed as though the governors of the land were eager that the temple building be ceased and the God's people were obviously eager that he would side with them but were left wondering what would the pleasure of King Darius be. And that's what we find here in chapter 6 is the answer to that question. And this portion of chapter 6 is really uh, obsessed with this idea of what I've entitled today's message, the, the king's decree. We see that word decree uh, five or six times in this portion of God's word. And in the king's decree, his desire, his pleasure made known through his spoken word and the creation of law and ordinance was what was wrapped up in this particular situation. And what they were desiring to know is, what does the king desire us to do? By the way, church, we have a king, and that same question should plague us. What does the king desire us to do in our day? Robert Files said, these verses are full of hints in a way that we have come to see as characteristic of Ezra, that God is at work. That is the first principle of an old Bible study that, called Experiencing God, that we begin with the idea that God is at work. And it's also a reminder of the significance of what is happening in these passages that we're looking at this morning. And so we're going to look at five decrees that Darius makes and seek to make some application this morning of what these decrees might have to do or to say to us as the people of God who serve King Jesus here in 2020. The first of these decrees in the first couple of verses there refers to a pursuit. There was a pursuit decreed by King Darius having received the letter from these governors asking for his pleasure on the matter regarding the rebuilding of the temple that immediately Darius makes a decree that a search be made to see if what they were saying about his predecessor was true. His predecessor Cyrus who had decreed that the people could not only return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city but even more so that they could rebuild that place which was at the very heart of Jerusalem, the, king, the, the temple of the king above all kings, the God of heaven was to be rebuilt. Now we need to understand in a day in which we see constantly changing rules and regulations and we're not exactly sure how to make application of some of what the rulers of our land are saying and doing, we need to understand very clearly that in these Old Testament days that the decrees of kings were considered unbreakable. If the king said something, it had to be carried out. Even the king himself could not overturn his own word, which may sound strange to us, but if we, if we were to look over to Daniel chapter 6, you remember the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel was one of the king's trusted advisors, but he, he, the other advisors became jealous of, of Daniel and, and set up 
a ploy by which they would, we would entrap him. Basically, they convinced King Darius, this same king, to make a decree that for a period of 30 days that no one was to pray to any other gods besides Darius himself. The, the kings were considered to be gods in those days. And so Darius thinks, well, as prideful as he was, it sounds like a good idea. So he makes the decree, and Daniel chooses obedience to God over obedience to King Darius. He goes and prays. They, they trap him in his praying, and he ends up facing the penalty of the lion's den. Well, Darius is very concerned because, again, Daniel is one of his most trusted advisors. He loves Daniel, but he knows that he can't break his own word. Daniel 6.15, these men, these other advisors, came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Even the king himself couldn't overturn a word he had previously spoken. And so Daniel that night was put into the lines. But we know that the greater king protected Daniel and the next day, those advisors who had sought to do him harm were cast into the lion's den, and their bones were broken. You see, though those de the decrees of those kings in those days were considered unbreakable, even by the king himself, we understand there's a greater word. The power of God's word is purely undeniable. They were waiting at the end of chapter 5 of Ezra to see what the word of King Darius would be. But they should have realized this reality that there's already a greater king who had spoken. And while they considered Darius's word unbreakable, they needed to realize that there was a greater word that had already been spoken that would be played out. As has already been spoken this morning from Philippians 1, 6. He who begins a good work in us will complete it. Our God is faithful to his word. And when he gives us a work to do, that work will be carried to its completion. Really the only question that remains is it's not whether or not God's work will be completed. It's what part will we have in that work? Will we be faithful to do what God has given us to do? Isaiah 14 the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? These are rhetorical questions, aren't they? The answer is no one will annul what God has spoken. His word will remain and will be completed. His hand is stretched out. He is at work. There's a picture of God at work there. No one will turn it back. No one can undo what God is doing. There will be opposition, as we've already seen in these sermons, but we understand God's word will be accomplished. The second decree, the first one relates to the pursuit of uh, what had formerly been spoken by King Cyrus. But then there was a purpose decree. There's always purpose here in these passages that Ezra's wanting us to see God at work behind the scenes doing uh, continually for his people and for his glory. So what was the purpose that was decreed? Well, it was simply this. That God's residence, God's house at Jerusalem was to be rebuilt. That was the work of God in those days. It was very clear that God's residence, God's house, God's temple was to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And this was not a new concept. 
God had spoken this long before he ever sent the people into exile in the first place. As, as Bob mentioned, he had prophesied about Cyrus, that he would raise him up as a shepherd for his people, and, and he had given him this task of rebuilding the temple. We saw it in Ezra 1. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Might be good for us to ask this morning, what has God charged us to do as his people in this day? He has given us a mission. It is not just to come here and, and sing songs and hear a sermon on Sunday mornings. It begins there, but it must go beyond that as well. He has given us a mission in this world. He has charged us to complete a work on his behalf. But you see here, behind the king's decree... Behind Cyrus's decree and behind Darius's decree, there stood a greater king's decree. That's what we need to understand as we consider what's happening in decrees in our land, as laws are being made and as ordinances are being established and as recommendations are being given, we need to understand rightly, if we were to look at what's happening with our own government as we're moving toward an election here ever so shortly from now, we need to be reminded that ultimately there is a greater king, a greater sovereign who is in control of all of these things. And while we don't always clearly see his hand in the foreground his hand is always at work in the background and he is orchestrating the events in our world for our good as his people and his for his glory as the king above all kings you see if we live that way if we live in light of the sovereignty of almighty god it changes the way that we do things day to day this is just not just high-minded theology that causes us to think great things about God. It, it filters down into every area of our lives to where every decision that we make, we have to ask the question that's at the end of Ezra 5, what is the pleasure of the king? What does he desire? Not just what do I desire. The governors here had desires. God's people had desires. But the most important desires that, that were being questioned were, what is the desire of the king above all kings? And that question continually be upon our minds. Isaiah 44, again, this prophecy of Cyrus. The God who said of Cyrus, before Cyrus was ever born, or ever, before the Persian Empire ever became the world power that would release his people back to their homeland. God said, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be rebuilt, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now take that and put it side by side with where we were at the end of Ezra chapter 5. They had laid the foundation for the temple that had already taken place but then opposition arose and for the better part of two decades the work of God was stopped and at the end of chapter 5 we we're wondering if the work would continue to be stopped there was no reason to think that Darius would side with, with those returned exiles over his own governors over the people that he had put in power but God was at work, and he had already said what he was going to do. And as long as God's people will trust in God's word, there's no reason to fear. There's no reason to be ashamed. There's no reason to lack in pursuing that which God has already given us to do. The next 
the next of these decrees that we see relates to provision. Provision that God decreed for his people. Again, there was opposition here. And that actually all near. There was things that God had decreed here for his people in terms of how this work would be done. We understand that what God is doing here is he is overturning the things that godless men were seeking to carry out in their day. And by the way, God continues to do that kind of a work today. Godless men will plot and scheme. They will seek their own glory. They will seek their own kingdoms. But God is continually taking the works of godless men and turning them toward his own purpose. He does this all the time, and he is no different today. The reality of their day was this, that those who fought against the work of God would now be those who would fund it. Look at what Darius decreed. Not only are you to stay away and let these folks do what Cyrus had already decreed for them to do, not only that, but he added to it, you're going to fund the work. The taxes that you pay are going to be used now to fund this temple. So not only are you going to have to abstain from opposing them, but you're going to have to fund them. And you're going to have to supply them. Think about how this struck those who were in opposition to what God had deemed right to do in terms of the rebuilding of this temple. They had to have been hot, man. You've got to be kidding me. Not only do we have to allow this to go on, but we have to take part in it. This is the power of Almighty God on display. James Hamilton said that the Bible teaches that God turns Satan's efforts against God's people into blessings for them. This is the continual pattern of Scripture. Satan succeeds in having Jesus the Messiah crucified, fulfilling God's plan to save those who believe. At the very center of our faith is the cross, the great picture of God overturning the enemy's plan and using it for his purpose. Satan sends a messenger to afflict the Apostle Paul, accomplishing God's purpose of keeping Paul from becoming conceited. God will do this in your life, too, and in mine. There is no setback, no failure, no tragedy, no disappointment, and no defeat that God can't use to bless you. Do we believe that this morning? Because you know our tendency, or, or I'll just speak to your pastor's tendency, when times get difficult, when opposition arises, when things aren't working out exactly as I had desired them to, my default position is grumbling. Now, I get it honest. That's been the default position of God's people for a very long time. Back to those Old Testament days, what were they continually doing against Moses in the desert? God's people were continually grumbling about the fact that they didn't have the food they wanted, that they didn't have the shelter they wanted, they didn't have the resources that they wanted, and so they, they grumbled. They complained, ultimately, they complained against Moses, but ultimately they complained against God. And see, that's what complaining does in our lives. And man, are we in a season where complaining abounds. If you don't realize that, just go on Facebook. Actually, just don't go on Facebook. You, you will see so much complaining and griping. And, and ultimately, we need to understand when that's the default position, not just of our minds, but of our mouths. The real issue is it's complaining is grounded in a faithlessness. 
It's grounded in a false belief that God really isn't in control of all things, that he really isn't working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that he really isn't the God who will complete that which he begins. We see God's call demonstrated here and this reality as he provides for the work that God rarely calls the equipped, but he always equips the called. Think about what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth when he says to them as they were kind of rising up in their own pridefulness about who they were and all the great things that they were going to do for the Lord. The Apostle Paul reminds them, hey brothers, not many of you were very much when God called you. Not many of you were wealthy, not many of you were very smart, not many of you were exceptionally good looking, not many of you were much of anything in terms of what the world considers to be important. And yet, you were called, you were sanctified, you were justified by what God did through his son at the cross, and you have been given a mission in this world by Almighty God. That ought to humble us in the most immense of ways. But God has promised to equip us for the task. Isaiah 45, he says, I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no other God. I equip you, though you do not know me. He's actually speaking about Cyrus there in Isaiah 45. He's speaking about Cyrus saying, this is a king who doesn't even know me, and I'm going to equip him for my work. And so what that ought to say to us, children of God, is we ought, to, we ought to know this. If God is going to equip Cyrus, who didn't even know and worship him rightly, just saw the one true and living God as one God among many gods, as so many do in our current culture, if that's true that God was going to equip him for the work he had for them, how much more will God equip us who actually know him and are desiring to know him more. How much more? And finally this morning, we see that there was also a penalty decreed. A penalty was decreed as well. And we see it there in verses 11 and 12. I want to read those again for us. It's graphic. But Darius says, I also make a decree that if anyone alters this edict concerning the rebuilding of the temple a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled upon it and his house shall be made a dunghill that's a trash heap by the way you're going to turn your home into a garbage dump may the god who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of god that is in jerusalem I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. That means, hey, boys, get to work. Think about that penalty for a moment in light of what we understand about the, those people in those Old Testament days. To be deleted like this was a fate worse than death. This is not just if you mess with the work of the temple, you're going to be killed. But really, the picture that he's painting here is... You're going to be erased from history. Not just you, but your entire household is the picture is going to be deleted. So don't mess with what's happening there in Jerusalem. Support them in the work. Derek Kidner said that there was a poetic justice in making a man's own house 
the instrument of his execution for tampering with the house of God. It's graphic what was happening here. And yet I do believe there's a picture here of the, the lasting reality that the wages of sin is death. When we stand opposed to God, whether we are a king or a governor or just common folk, when we stand opposed to God in our living, in our attitudes, in our mindsets, and the actions that come from them, when we stand opposed to God, we face the penalty of death. And rightfully so, because our king is a holy king. We're going to see an increasing emphasis on holiness as we move into the second half of Ezra 7 in the coming weeks. A reminder that we are called to be a set-apart people. We cannot live just like the world because the world is opposed to the things of God. We cannot do what they do and go where they go and say what they say. We cannot grumble as they grumble because we're called to be a set-apart people. Which puts us in a precarious position at various points as we see our culture moving farther and farther and farther from the things of God that he's laid out in his scriptures. But I want us to consider something. We think about the penalty for sin and the fact that all of us justly would receive it. How is it that the curse that was rightfully due us was turned into a blessing? You see, this is something that the Old Testament followers of God couldn't quite understand because they had not yet seen the unveiling of this glorious thing called the gospel. You see, what we see here in Ezra 6 is really a glimmer of a greater story that I want to share with you in just a minute. And it's, it's founded in Isaiah 53, which says that he, this one called the suffering servant, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. So if you'd allow me for a few moments as we finish this, this message this morning, I'd like to share with you this greater story. What we see here in Ezra 6 is really just a glimmer of the much greater story that is told to us by a much greater king. It's the story of his pursuit of his people and his purpose in the world that he decreed and created by his own he made a wonderful land by the word of his power and planted there the very first people and gave them authority over the works of his hands and he walked with them day by day. And he gave them this decree that they should build a great house where the great king might come to live among them. But as is always the case, opposition arose against the great king in the form of an accuser who led the people astray from the work he had given them to do. The great king had warned his people that if they walked in his ways and accomplished the work of building his house, there would be for them great and unending blessing, but that if they turned away and did not do what he had decreed, that the curse of death would be upon them. 
But rather than walking in obedience to the great king, the people fell prey to the accuser, and they ceased to do the king's work, and they became obsessed with building their own little kingdoms. And the great king looked upon the world that he had made, and he was deeply grieved by the disobedience of his subjects and the fact that it seemed as if they had forgotten him altogether. So he sent his messengers to call them back to the great task of building his house. But the people simply would not listen. They were too concerned with their own affairs, blinded by their own self-interest. They even went so far as to kill many of his messengers. So the king sent more messengers to the people who brought. They brought both warnings of the coming judgment and encouragements to return to following the king's decrees to return to the work of building the great king's house that he might come and live among them and after many years of sending messengers to the people the great king knew that it was time to send someone greater and so having but one son one son who had always perfectly obeyed the decrees of his father the great king sent his only son to the people to call them back to the work of building his great house the son of the great king was a gentle man, but incredibly strong in his convictions. He was full of wisdom and kind-hearted and yet ferociously faithful to his father and his decrees. He came to the people dressed not in kingly robes, but in a poor man's garments. Most didn't even recognize him. Some thought that he was merely one more in that long line of messengers that the great king had sent. But a few heard what he had to say, and they turned back to the work of building the great king's house. The king's son taught them how to build according to the great king's instructions, and he even joined them in the work and gave them everything that was necessary to complete it. But again, opposition arose, and this time they came against the king's son. Not wishing to be citizens of the kingdom and to follow the great king's decrees, they took hold of the great king's son and they dragged him to a hillside on the edge of town and they put him to death. He never once struggled, never tried to defend himself. Though he could have called upon the armies of the great king to come and to destroy those people, he simply gave himself into their hands. Now, how should the great king respond to this greatest of all treacheries? From the very beginning, he had decreed life for the obedient and death for the disobedient. Would he stand behind his own word that the soul who sins shall die? Would he jerk a beam from each and every house of those who had been so obsessed with building their own kingdoms, all those faithless builders, and simply impale them upon the works of their own hands? Surely that would be justice. Instead, the great king did the unthinkable. What was even considered scandalous by most. He made a new decree. The life of his son would count for the impending penalty upon all the disobedient. They need only take the king at his word and mercy would be granted to them. 
Not only that, but the, the king, out of his own treasury, would supply all that was needed for finishing out his original decree. A house would indeed be built where the king and all who trusted in what the king's son had done for them would live together forever. Oh, and the king's son would be there too, for the grave could not hold him for long. So I must ask us today, where do we find ourselves in the greatest of all stories, the story of the great king? Truly, his story is ours. More accurately, our story is really just a portion of his. Consider this. Is the driving force of your life to build a house for yourself or to build a house for him? Have you come to the place of realizing that you have sinned against him and you're deserving of his eternal wrath? And have you seen what he has done for you in his one and only son? I want to say to us today, there is without doubt, there is mercy for the sinner and superabundant grace for those who would look to him by faith. The king above all kings has chosen not to treat us as our sins deserve. There is forgiveness to be found at the beam upon which his son died. So will you take the great king at his word? Will you turn from your sins? And will you trust in Jesus Christ today? Let's pray together. Father, you are that great king, the king above all kings, the king to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and the confession will be Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the king above all kings. He is worthy of our submission. Some will make that confession through gritted teeth having hated the king all their lives. Others will make it with great joy, having known his mercies, having experienced his grace. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to consider the greatest of all stories in which we do have a part. We were created by you as all things have been. Each of us have sinned against you and are deserving of your righteous wrath. If true justice were done, a beam would be pulled from all of our houses and we would be impaled upon it. But because of your great mercy, instead it was your son who was pierced. And he was pierced for our transgressions. The chastisement that rightfully belonged to us was placed upon him. And now we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not just peace with God, but a place with God. In the here and now and for all eternity because of what Christ has done. 
And you've called us to be a part of this glorious work of building your temple no longer, no longer with regular old stones, but with living stones, with the lives of those redeemed by your grace and for your glory. You've called us to be a part of proclaiming this great story to all the nations beginning right here in Breckenridge County and reaching to the uttermost parts of the earth. But rightfully understanding this story begins in a place of repentance and faith, Father. You have spoken this to us. And so would you lead us in that this morning? To lead us to turn from our sins, to turn from our life's focus of building our own little kingdoms that will one day be burned up and to expend our lives building the house of the great king that one day we might live with you forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name.